0: In January, the bill for our LL Bean credit card showed up and I opened it up and it said $54. Well, I knew what that was about because for Christmas, Karen had bought me some pants from LL Bean and they didn't fit. So actually, I'd already sent them back. And I knew that they were going to be received back there and credited back on my account long before the end of this payment cycle. So it, it was going to clear we were going to be fine. So I threw away the bill. In February, the bill for the L.L. Bean credit card came, and it still showed $54. And underneath that, it showed penalties, interest, and late fees of another $27. I said, oh, no, you didn't. So I rummaged through the drawer, found the UPS slip from when I had shipped those pants back, went online, got the tracking number, and I had airtight proof that those pants had been received by L.L. Bean Returns, Freeport, Maine, on January 9th. So I picked up the phone, and I called them in my full prosecuting attorney mojo. And I I said, well, you know, I returned my slacks, but something went wrong on your end, and so I got charged penalties, interest, and late fees. The woman was very nice, and she said, you know, sir, I don't see any credits back to your LLB and credit card. I was like, well, uh, could you get me somebody who can help me? So she escalated me to a resolution specialist, and that woman trolled all through their computer system, and she said, sir, there is no credit back on your LLB and credit card. I go, could you get me some help? So she sent me over to receiving, and I got like Homer in receiving or something, and he looked it up, and he said, well, sir, I do show that those pants arrived back here January 9th. But he said, if they're not credited back on your L.L. Bean credit card, is it possible that there's another credit card that they were ordered with? I was like, oh, please. We always order L.L. Bean stuff with the L.L. Bean credit card because you get free shipping. But if you mean is it technically possible, okay, it's technically possible. We do have another credit card. So I looked up on that account online, the Visa card, and there was this credit back from L.L. Bean. I didn't know that. $54, and then, or whatever the pants were, and then I found out, talking to Karen, that she had bought something else from L.L. Bean that I didn't know about, and the price for that was $54. I didn't know that. Now, when I called them, I was right. I knew I was right. But there was something I didn't know, something I didn't see. And so L.L. Bean trains its people, the customer's always right, not always right. But, hey, they're paid to deal with stupid people. So, (laughs) but sometimes in my kitchen, I have an experience a lot like that. Karen and I will be in some sort of conversation, and it starts to escalate, and she'll say, you're not getting it. What is she saying? She's saying there's something you don't yet see. You think you know, but actually you don't yet see it. And that blind spot is affecting our relationship. Well, I came here this morning to tell you that that same kind of dynamic that can happen in my relationship with L.L. Bean and that can happen in my, my relationship with my wife, Karen, can happen in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Where I go to Jesus and I've got an expectation. I've got a demand. I've got a question. And I know I'm right. And he says, there's something you don't yet see. There's actually... A blind spot. Now, last week, I talked about how God's Spirit sometimes leads us into spiritual desert times. And when I brought that up, I could see everybody here in this congregation is going, man, I totally know what you're talking about. This sermon's for me. I'm taking notes today. And now today, I'm talking about how we can have these blind spots in our relationship with Jesus Christ, and they can affect our ability to believe in him. Nobody thinks that's for me. If you're normal, you don't think it's for me because you can't see a blind spot. By definition, you can't see what you can't see. You don't know what you don't know. So you shouldn't think you have a blind spot. But you might. And what I want to do is hold up the mirror of God's word to all of us today and say, is it possible that into our relationship with Jesus Christ there is a blind spot, something that we are not yet seeing that's affecting our relationship with him? Whenever I'm at Sheridan's Barbershop there in Wheaton, when I'm all done, the barber spins me around and I face the big mirror, but I, can never, I can't see the back of my head. I can never see that. So he holds up the little mirror so I can see what's going on back there. And every time he does that, I'm always like, man, what'd you do? You created like a balding spot up there. That's like... <laughs> but he's trying to show me something. And that's what God's Word can do for us this morning. I invite you to summon up your courage. Let's go look at God's Word together. Would you turn with me to John 3? This is a conversation that Jesus has with somebody who has a blind spot and he doesn't know it. And I want to learn from this what kind of blind spots we might have that Jesus might want to work on and address in our lives and how we can do that with him. Verse 1, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee not just any Pharisee, Nicodemus sits on the great council, what's called the Sanhedrin. It's like the cultural equivalent of the Supreme Court and the Congress rolled together. So he has one of the very elite positions in that culture. So when he shows up to talk with Jesus, it's not like he's coming in with some sense that, hey, we're peers, we're going to sit down and talk. No, 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 no. He's coming in on top. He's got one of the most respected and desired positions in that entire culture, Jesus really has no position. Nicodemus has spent his whole life with a a massive amount of education. Jesus has very little. Nicodemus is wealthy. Jesus is dirt poor. And Nicodemus is respected. And Jesus is suspected. So he comes in on top. And it says there in verse 2, after dark one evening, at night, He came to speak with Jesus. Now, why would he come at night when that's not the visiting hours? That's not when people get together and talk. Why did he come at night? Well, Jesus has just, before this, taken ropes, sat there, made a whip, picked it up, and started whipping all the sacrificial animals that are there, like in the mall that they've made inside the temple courts. They beat and bellow and stampede and run out knocking over stuff, he dumps the tables, the coins go scattering across the floor, and he has just poked his eye into the entire temple system. He has, he has desecrated in their minds the temple courts. And so if Nicodemus were to show up in the daytime when people go, oh, I saw him go into the house of that Jesus of Nazareth, he's committing social suicide. John actually says later in this book, many Jewish leaders did believe in Jesus, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. And so when it says that that Nicodemus came at night, John is also suggesting metaphorically he's in a spiritual night. He's he's not really crossed the line. He has this blind spot, like, I can be kind of interested in Jesus, and it's not going to affect my position of respect and, and honor in this culture, it won't it won't mess with that. And so they begin their conversation, and Nicodemus begins with a with a compliment. He says, "Rabbi, teacher, we all know that God sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God's with you." And Jesus doesn't even respond to the compliment because he's not interested in in taking in the compliments. He, Nicodemus wants a conversation. Jesus wants a conversion. And so he comes right back, and he says, to tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. If you really want to see me, if you really want to get who I am, it's not going to be a little bit more information in your prodigious religious knowledge. No, 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 no. This is not like a coat of paint on the house of your religious life. This is what we call a teardown, that bulldozers have to come in and knock down the old for the new to go up. That's what I'm talking about. And Nicodemus says, verse 4, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, why does a guy as smart as he not get this? Well, for one, there is a play on words. Jesus is saying, you need to be born from over you, meaning from heaven, from God. And Nicodemus hears born over and thinks it means a second physical birth. And he's like, that doesn't make sense. But he's also struggling here because he's saying, are you really suggesting that my life at the pinnacle of culture, that one that I've worked so hard to get to, that that has to be torn down and that I need a totally new start with you? You, you can't be suggesting that. And yet Jesus is. And, he, and they continue on in their conversation. And the last thing Nicodemus says is verse 9, how are these things possible? moves from shock to dumbfounded. It, the conversation is not going really well. Nicodemus thought, I'm coming here to compliment you and kind of question you, check you out, and now it seems like you're questioning me. Like, what happened? How, how did this thing flip around and become about my life and my need for change? But Jesus starts to hold up the mirror to Nicodemus' blind spot. Just listen to these phrases that are sprinkled throughout this text. You cannot see. You can't tell you can't explain. You don't understand. You won't believe. You don't believe. How can you possibly believe? You've already been judged for not believing. And Jesus is saying, here's your blind spot, Nicodemus. You came in up here thinking that I'm a nice rabbi, kind of intriguing, But if you're going to start a whole new spiritual life, if you're really going to enter into what God's doing, there's going to have to be a complete flip where you come and fall on your back and it's like you're looking up to heaven. It's like the posture that a newborn baby has when it's held. It's naked, it's vulnerable, and it's looking up. That's the posture you have to get in so that you begin to finally see me, as he says here, as the one who came down from heaven, as God's one and only son. I'm not some, some one of your many spiritual options kind of intriguing. No, if you're going to get me, you're going to start from down here looking up and surrender to me. We, uh, we all have that blind spot, I mean, when we start our spiritual life. Sometimes I'll talk with people at the guest center like, ah, I'm really glad to be here at Res because I'm really interested in spirituality. And I'm really happy to hear that because I can tell that God's brought them to this point of interest. But it's like I don't have enough time there to tell them, Do you realize that at some point there's going to be a decisive moment where you can no longer be up here looking down at your options as though I'm in charge of my life and I'll rummage around in the spiritual options like Jesus and many others and see which ones make sense and maybe I'll go with that one? There's going to have to be a complete flip where you are surrendered and helpless and you go, Jesus, you're the one and only Son of God. Some of you know the name Francis Collins, he's a brilliant doctor and researcher. He headed the Human Genome Project and then later directed the National Institutes of Health. When he was a young doc, one of his patients said to him one day, well, what do you think, doctor? What what is it you believe in? And he didn't know what to say, and finally he stammered and said, you know, I don't don't think I believe in anything. And even at the time, he said, that sounded like a very thin statement, and that bothered him. And he started this long process of searching. It included reading some books by Christians like C.S. Lewis and, and, and grilling some pastors about the faith. And one fall day, he was hiking in the Cascade Mountains, and he came around a bend, and there in front of him was this waterfall hundreds of feet high that in the crisp mountain fall air had frozen solid. It was like a cascade of crystal. And he said, right then I knew my search was over. And the next morning as the sun came up over that mountain ridge, he says, I knelt down in the dewy grass and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. If you're going to be born again, you're going to have to move from the over position. I'll check you out. You're kind of intriguing to a complete under position, looking up and surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ. Now, what about us? Most of us here have, have had that experience. We know what, we're, what I'm saying there. Is it possible that we could still have blind spots? That we, in certain ways, could come in in an overposition to Jesus Christ? So we go, no, we really love Jesus. We would never do that to him. But here's what I want to submit to you. We can have a blind spot where we come in and we look down on his word and we look down on his work. Let me, let me unpack that for you so you know what I'm trying to get at it's possible for us, especially if you've been in church for a while and you've studied these kind of things, you can think, I already know all that. I I admit, when I came to this text to start studying for this sermon, I was like, oh yeah, John 3, that's the born-again text. Billy Graham used that all the time in his crusades. And I was a little blase about it. And And there's a blind spot, is there not, that I'm up here gathering more religious knowledge rather than I'm down here completely surrendered to the transformative work of Jesus in my life. Do you know that religious knowledge does not equal spiritual growth? There's a a pastor out in Queens, a guy named uh, Pete Scazzaro. He and his wife, Jerry, started their church out there. It's called New Life Fellowship in Queens. And eight years after they had started the church, Jerry came to him one day and said, Pete, I quit. He's like, What do you mean you quit? She said, I'm not going to your church anymore. He's like, My church? This is our church. She said, Pete, I can't do it. He's like, Are you crazy? Do you know what it's going to look like if the pastor's wife doesn't go to the pastor's church? She's like, Pete, you're a mess. She said, you you don't listen. You don't listen to the family. We've been crying out to you for years. You're not getting it. And then you go to church and you lack the courage to stand up to some people who need to be stood up to. And I can't even handle the stress anymore. I, I, I don't even respect your leadership. And what was Jerry doing that day? She's holding up the mirror and saying, it's not enough that you have an MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. It's not enough that you've already studied the New Testament and know your Koine Greek. That's not going to cut it. You need a transformation inside. What happens for you and for me when we say, you know what, it's not about amassing religious knowledge. We don't, we don't go, oh, I've read that text. I know it's in there for me. If you set your course on being transformed like a newborn baby by Jesus Christ and every day becoming a little more loving, do you know that on your deathbed you can become more loving? You can be sitting there praying for the nurse's aides who are coming in to attend you. And so we don't come in over his word. We come in under his word and let it change us. Well, last, I want to talk about this blind spot where we don't look down on his word, but we look down on his work. One of the things that's interesting in this conversation with Nicodemus is he keeps asking Jesus questions, and Jesus does not directly answer his questions. He answers his deeper questions, but he's not answering in a way that Nicodemus is expecting or wanting. And I wonder sometimes if we go to Jesus and we go, why are you not answering my question? I thought that by now in my life, you would have provided, fill in, a better job. I thought by now you would have provided a spouse. I thought by now you would have provided children because we've been praying for that for so long. I thought by now you would have provided salvation for this loved one. I thought by now you would have brought healing for this medical condition. And Jesus doesn't directly answer. And we get disappointed. We're like, what, are you, what is wrong with you? And we come in in the over position. And Jesus is saying, could it be that there's actually a blind spot where you think that I'm primarily here to serve you. And instead, you need to flip over and go, Lord Jesus, what are you doing and how can I serve what you're doing? It's a complete reversal. It's a reorientation. The, the folks who study uh, religious sociology in our country say that the predominant religion for Americans is not Christianity. It's what's called moral therapeutic deism, which is a mouthful. What does that mean? It means that people think if I'm moral, if I'm nice, if I kind of behave myself, then you deity will be therapeutic. You will provide, for me, therapeutic services such that my life becomes more comfortable and more manageable. And and now you're not following through on that. When did Jesus ever promise that? And so we come in and we go, we, we, we look down on your work. We don't think you're actually doing very well by us. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You need to be born again. You need a complete reversal and flip of your perspective so that it's no longer about me here to serve you. It's you here to serve me. I have so much life to give you and love if you'll get in that one position where you can receive it. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son said everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son in the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. God is not interested in condemning you. He didn't send his son out of hatred to judge you. He sent his son in love to save you, to bring you a new and eternal life. And you can enter into that if you'll be born again. I want to read for you what, uh, just a couple stories that help make clear what does it look like when I actually flip and I start looking to Jesus to get in on his interests and serve him rather than expect him to serve me. One comes from one of our staff members, Pastor Amy, who leads our children's work. She, she told me that, uh, and I'm going to read from her email here, during a prayer day at the Arboretum, I heard the Lord clearly say that I should be asking him what he is doing and how I might align my work in that instead of asking him to help me in what I'm doing. Did you get that? Instead of going to Jesus and going, why aren't you blessing my work? You should be blessing what I'm doing. I'm doing it for you. You should be blessing my stuff. She realized through the Lord, oh, oh, I should be asking him what he's doing and how I might align my work with that. And she said this reorientation, that's what she called it, has come up repeatedly as I read Scripture. That's what it looks like when you make that flip from Jesus, you're here for me, to no, I'm here for you. Last, and I'll, I'll close with this. this, is a really moving story that a woman in our church shared with me, and it's a, it's a sacred trust. But she agreed to share it because she wanted to help others. She says, The Lord walked me through much healing from my abused past, but even as an adult with children and a husband, my abuser still invaded my dreams, turning them into nightmares. I had forgiven him time and again, but the reality was he and his abuse still had a grip on my life. I'd give it up to him, lay my nightmares, my pain, my memories at the foot of the cross over and over, and still it was very much a part of who I was. Finally, in great desperation and anger with the Lord, I cried out to Him, What else do I need to do? I've prayed. I've lifted. I've laid it. I've forgiven. Why am I still a victim? Why have you not healed of me of this? Why is this childhood experience still defining me as a Christian woman? Then during a healing prayer session, the Lord gave me a vision. The Lord was showing me my life and how He'd been walking with me every step of the way. Then He called me to come to Him, and when I tried to walk to Him, I couldn't. Looking down, I saw my feet were bound in heavy chains. Desperate, I looked him in the eyes and crying, I said, I want to, but I can't. He said, why not? I said, because I cannot break these chains. He looked at me with the most tender gaze and said, No, you can't, but I can. And he did. That was almost five years ago now, and I have not had a nightmare since. Praise God. Well, here's what she says as she reflects on that. She said, I always thought it was up to me to make my relationship with the Lord move forward and grow. But really what he taught me was to invite him into my life right where I am, into my sinful human ugliness, into the dark corners of life that I want to ignore or hide from. In that darkness, everything seems so horrible. But by inviting the Lord in, showing my warts and all, he comes and meets me, shining his light, dispersing the darkness from before me praise god friends jesus came out of love for you he came with eternal life for you he came not to judge you but to save you and you can enter into that life and know it in your daily experience and it all begins when you stop looking from this perspective and you flip and become as helpless as a newborn baby, you must be born again.